Good day, everyone. This is March Twisdale, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, and I'd like to welcome you to my interview with Brian Fagan today. Brian, thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. So today, I'm super excited about what we're talking about, these books. How about we start with you doing a self-intro, give us a sense of who you are, and sort of your background. I was born in England, and... I went to Cambridge University where I studied archaeology, and then I went out to Central Africa and worked in a museum there for six years, then spent a year in East Africa, all the time doing archaeological research, and then after that in 1966 I came over to the University of Illinois in Champaign for a year, and then in 1967 I went to the University of California, Santa Barbara, what I taught for 36 years. I've been retired for 11 years and now write books and give lectures. So you were actually teaching there when I was about eight years old and riding my bike all over the campus and swimming in the swimming pool. I lived uh, near UCSB a bunch as a kid. And I just think that's like so cool because our memories, we share some memories there. The reason I called you up and asked you if you'd come on the show is because my mother had read one of your books that came out about a decade ago. She read it once and then about, I don't know, a few months ago, ran across it again. And she's just sitting there in the living room going, oh, my gosh. And then, you know, about 20 minutes later, oh, my gosh. And like every day for literally a couple of weeks in a row, she's like, you need to read this book. It's called The Great Warming. Can you go ahead and tell our listeners a little bit about that book? It was one of a series of books on ancient climate change that I've written. Um, It's a book that describes climate change since the Ice Age, about 15,000 years ago, right up to today. Its concern really is with the pre-industrial world, with the impacts of droughts and El Ninos and things like that, uh, and really kind of gives background to the climate change debates of today. I did finally carve some time out of my life, took my mother's advice, and started flipping through your book and agreed with her completely. What I think struck me most is a lot of people are like, oh, okay, it's a book. It talks about history. Yay. Is that relevant? And especially if it's um, ecological history, you know, it's like, great, so that happened 800 years ago, but it's not happening now, so is it relevant? However, of course, as we know... You in this book do this brilliant job of taking historical events that we can prove happened and then aligning them with the currently scientifically understood weather systems that actually led to those provable historical events. So right now, if you open up a newspaper or you're paying attention to global warming, climate change issues, they're talking about all these, you know, this wind pattern and that water pattern, all these cycles. And your book points to those things and says, this is what caused it. So it's like this actual massive relevancy throughout the entire book. That's what I try and do. So why don't you pick out a couple of um, examples to like your like top two or top three favorite weather systems that you really would want your readers to understand and what what you can show was was caused to have happened in human society historically? I think the probably the most important weather phenomenon after the passage of the seasons is El Nino, which is, of course, uh, the huge or potentially huge 
change in the weather, which is caused by the spread of warm water eastward across the Pacific, uh, which occurs irregularly, probably on average about every 10 years. The present one we have is a very severe one. Mm -hmm. And this causes major disruptions in global weather. It causes droughts in northeast Brazil and southern Africa, droughts in Australia. It is theoretically, at any rate, supposed to produce rain in Southern California and Northern California, although we've escaped this year. And it produces very, very heavy rain on the coast of Peru, which is one of the driest environments on Earth. Mm -hmm. And this ripples across the world and causes enormous impacts right across the world, everywhere, and uh, is probably very, very major. And then the opposite of it is La Nina, which is the cold version, which causes drought in California. Mm -hmm. So this is one of the major ones, and what I do is talk a lot about the impact of that. The other one, which is terribly important, is the whole issue of drought in various areas. The Near East is one, the American Southwest is another, and the impact there in an environment today where there were a million people, cities, and so on. In the past, people could move in the face of drought. They no longer can. Right, right. We were talking about that before, and you were explaining, I think there was um, uh, certain people who lived in prone to desert regions like um, the Southwest, and they had relationships with tribes that were in other areas that were more wet. And, like, they would go and, you know, during a really bad year, they'd go actually live with the other tribe in a different region. Particularly those engaged in subsistence agriculture and herding and fishing, the most important dynamic in society is kinship, mm -hmm. your relationships with others. And in the case of, say, Chaco Canyon in New Mexico mm. or Mesa Verde or many African villages, the most important relationship in environments where drought is very common and rainfall failure is common and rain is unpredictable and local where you may get rain in one village five miles away and not in your village, it's terribly important that you maintain relationships with your kin mm -hmm. in other villages who will feed you. Mm-hmm and vice versa, because when they have trouble and you don't, you feed them. And these relationships of kin uh, really extended across the American Southwest extremely extensively and were a major dynamic in societies that believed you moved in the face of drought. Right, right. You know, it's interesting what you bring up about kinship. And, I mean, in our current world, there's an orientation towards um, violence, you know, stealing what you need from other people. And sometimes we don't understand just how thoroughly committed sustainable cultures of the past were to actually taking care of each other, even separate tribes. So there's this great example in the Kalahari Desert. Great book with lots of photos was created in the 70s, maybe the 60s and 70s. And in it, they were talking about how there were certain places where they would take ostrich eggs and they would have drilled a little hole, gotten the egg out, eaten it, and then they, they fill it up during the wet season with water, and they would have these, what do they call it, C-A-C-H-E. Is that a cache? How do you pronounce it? Cache. Cache, okay. So they'd have this spot, and you have, like, different family tribal groups that have different roots that are very distinct, but they would intersect where the water um, was cached, and they would use black ink to put a design on the egg, and during the dry seasons when they had to resort to using this water source, 
if you showed up, all the eggs were like in the same place for three different tribal groups, but you didn't take the water of the other group. That is correct. They felt safe enough to leave what would cause them to live or die in a location where they knew the other people could find it. They trusted each other. Well, no, everyone depended on everyone else, and they knew that. And life was much more cooperative than it is today. I mean, everything was held commonly. A lot of things were. Mm -hmm. uh, and one, of course, one of the problems we have today is very simple. There were just too many people. Mm -hmm. And this crowds people too much. And really the most powerful catalysts in many societies today are uh, beyond families, of course, are neighborhoods, churches. Churches are enormously important, as we found after Katrina. Mm. Um, and these are very, very powerful relationships for humans. So you were talking really quickly about um, El Nino and La Nina, and last year there was the blob, which was the hot water that had come up along mm -hmm. California, Oregon, all the way up to Washington and probably into Canada. And it even came into the Puget Sound. So, you know, we were here in the Northwest, and so it was... It really was sort of devastating. Um, you know, this is Washington, the western coast. We have um, one of the wettest spots in the world is famous for that book series, Twilight by Stephanie Myers, Forks, Washington. You know, and I remember when I moved here about mm, almost 20 years ago to the northwest from California, I was so impressed that during the summer I only had to water my garden during an entire three-month summer maybe six times. Now, in California, you're watering four times a week, right? So maybe six times I would have to turn on a sprinkler, but otherwise, it rained a couple times every week all summer long. This last summer, we literally went something like almost 90 days without rain. And what was really painful about it was actually walking through the forest because we're technologically advanced enough to suck water out of the ground and water our gardens. We can keep up with the garden. But it hit me. No one waters the forest. And if Mother Nature doesn't come along, by the end of the summer, I didn't like walking in the forest because everything around me was dying. You could feel the dried out suffering of all of the life because no one waters the forest. And uh, anyways, what, you know, the blob. Like, what, what is that just basically El Nino on steroids? Yes. Yeah, the effects of El Nino are, you can get drought in the northwest from that, yeah. Um, we habitually live with water rationing. I mean, we have very carefully timed sprinklers in my yard. We mm -hmm. have a drought-resistant landscaping throughout. Uh, we've got uh, toilets which are adapted to using very little water and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. We also have got gray water. We're very equipped uh, we have to be, even mm -hmm. if it rains a lot. Right. And then when it does rain a lot, out of the blue, you end up with mudslides and things like that. Well, we right? have mudslides and all. They had some last week, actually. We had a rain, quite a violent rain. In fact, we're expecting rain tomorrow, but that's not a big one. Yeah, especially after we've had fires. Mm -hmm. this is, everyone says California is a wonderful climate. It is a climate of extremes, and this climate can be very dangerous at times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, I remember, yeah, it was pretty normal, all the wildfires they'd have when I it's grew up It's a semi-arid environment, and one has to remember that. And, of course, developers tend not to remember that. They well, don't care. L.A. basically is really a desert, right? It is a semi-arid landscape, yeah. Mm -hmm. Semi-arid Mediterranean. Not really a full desert, but pretty close to it. Mm -hmm. Go inland, you're in desert. 
Right. Okay. So, so the great warming, um, uh, let's see, basically folks, it's a brilliant read. It's very enjoyable. It's, yeah, I've always loved history and, um, I feel that history is enjoyable based upon the presentation and you do a great job in this book. Thank you. So let's talk about the, there's two more books. Granted, if you guys go to, um, so brianfagan.com is the easy to find website. It's, um, Brian spelled, you know, with an I A N and then Fagan is F A G A N. Okay. And if you go there, you can see there's a number of books, more than we're going to be able to talk about today. Brilliant. So the other two we are going to touch on is The Attacking Ocean and then The Intimate Bond. So tell us a little bit about The Attacking Ocean. The Attacking Ocean is a book about sea level change since the Ice Age, the last 15,000 years. And what people aren't generally aware is that uh, the global sea levels were over 300 feet lower than they are today. Uh, 15,000 years ago, the result Mm -hmm. was that Siberia and Alaska were joined by dry land. Mm -hmm. There was a huge continental shelf off Southeast Asia. England was part of the continent. The North Sea was dry land. It was a totally different world. Mm -hmm. And what I do in this book is tell the story of the impact of rising sea levels over the last 15,000 years, starting with a very dramatic story, which is the flooding of the North Sea, which happened between 15,000 and 5,500 BC. And this area was a marshland, Mm -hmm. swampy land with extensive uh, wetlands and river estuaries and so on, in which uh, hunting bands lived. And in fact, some of their artifacts have been dredged up from the floor of the North Sea. Mm -hmm. And this is a very interesting story because it shows if populations are relatively small, people can simply move to higher ground. Mm -hmm. Sure. That makes life much easier. So that's the beginning. And from there, we move on and we talk about the impact of rising sea levels on agricultural societies. Again, they moved. Uh, And we talk also about the whole issue of extreme weather events. Mm -hmm. And one of the most striking things about the history of rising sea levels is human responses to extreme weather events. Mm -hmm. Because ultimately, when you get sea levels rising and inundating cities with millions of people or densely occupied agricultural lands, Mm -hmm. your options are ultimately, ultimately, ultimately very simple. Mm -hmm. Either you wall off the ocean, which is what the Dutch have done with great brilliance, or you move to higher ground. Mm, Right. But what do you do in a case of a place like New York? Right. Where there were so many competing interests, and it's practically impossible to implement walling off, even before you consider the financial cost of it, which would be enormous. Right. This is an issue for the next 200 years. Well, and Or take a country like Bangladesh, which is a floodplain country that people forget. It's Mm poverty-stricken. It's 38 feet above sea level on an average. And I heard a fascinating talk some years ago by a retired major general from Bangladesh who was in charge of national security. And he told me that the impact of rising sea levels on people living by the shore 
who spend a lot of their lives afloat and are very, very spiritually anchored to the land mm -hmm. is very dire because rising sea levels are polluting groundwater as they are for the capital, Dhaka, the inland. There is rising population. And he estimates in half a century they may have to move between 20 and 50 million people. Well, Where are they going to go? Uh, How come India doesn't want them? Myanmar doesn't want them? Right. And these are the sort of issues which the next century is going to face. And the, one of the big issues of the next 150 years or more is going to be the issue of environmental refugees. Mm -hmm. And oddly enough, it's already happening because if you look at Syria, mm -hmm. one of the reasons a lot of people leaving Syria has nothing to do with war, it's to do with drought. They've got chronic problems with drought and agriculture, which of course are exacerbated by civil war. Right. And well, these are issues which governments just haven't faced. Well, and, you know, I mean, you've got a, a government that says, oh, gee, we've had, like in Syria, for example, prior to the hostilities, mm -hmm. um, there was a solid three years of intense drought, and all, it just wiped out the agriculture of the region. And it's yep. like, well, I can't water my land. I mean, I literally can't make the clouds of water. You know, it's like Mother Nature waters the forest and the fields and all that, and if she chooses not to. So I think it's not that the government's, it's like they have nothing they can do. I mean, yes, they can do certain things about how we respond or try to adapt, yes, but then they're always sitting there probably thinking, if I invest in this project over here with the assumption that we're going to have ongoing droughts, and then we don't, People are going to be critical that I spend our resources on preparing for something that didn't happen. So it's and this the projections weird. For the Middle East are of much greater validity in the next hundred years. So this problem is not going away. Mm -mm. No. But then you've got, of course, the other weather event, which is huge, which is uh, hurricanes and tropical cyclones. Mm -hmm. And again, the classic example, which I talk about in the book, is. Uh, tropical cyclones in Bangladesh, which funnel up the Bay of Bengal and come ashore. And they bring, of course, huge winds and rain. But what they really bring are sea surges. And when you've got a country that's 38 feet above sea level, mm -hmm. you're going to really have a problem with uh, very little warning in the days before they had forecasts. And there were fascinating Victorian accounts of steamships getting driven ashore during these sea surges, and one of them coming to ground opposite the post office, and watching trees underneath their keels. This right. is heavy stuff. And there's a lovely description by a government official who was marooned in a, a, a village where he survived by grabbing a palm tree. And he said in his diary, at exactly 1.30 p.m., I was flooded up to my waist. My watch stopped. Mm -hmm. So you've got detail like that, which kind of enlivens the book. It mm -hmm. is a very, very sobering account in a way. Well, very vulnerable. And yeah. millions of people living in cities like Shanghai, right. Uh, right down on sea level, or Miami, we have a problem with a capital P, and that problem is not going to go away. No, it's just, It's yeah. going to be a problem for our grandchildren, not mm -hmm. for us. I saw um, a map online that was, you know, they, they have these maps that are out that talk about, um, you know, if the sea level goes up this amount, what is the map going to look like? Florida's half as big all of a sudden. Like, you literally lose half the state with just a short amount of, of rise because so much of it is so flat. What I'm curious about 
because I'm imagining somewhere out there, someone must have created a map that shows the world, you know, 15,000 years ago when the water was 300 feet lower because of all the glaciers. Do you have an idea of where I might be able to find that oh, type of a map? The they're on the web. You, you will find them. If you just put in Ice Age sea levels, that'll probably find it. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. No, they're there. They're there, definitely. I've seen them myself. I can't give you the website, but it's easy to find. Oh, there it is. Ice Age sea levels map. I just really think it can help people if they can oh, yeah. start it's, to it's, see. Oh, my gosh. Very, look at that one. Uh, from what, you know, what, uh, what it is today. Wow. Um, and, I mean, what, what's interesting is there was a mild warming a thousand years ago, and the North Sea rose. Right. And the thing is that an awful lot of this sea level rise, and the Nile Delta is a very good example, the rise may be a foot, but when you've got very level country, the impact in terms of area is much bigger. So here's the deal. Horizontally. Right. So people, what you want to do is you want to go into Google and Ice Age Sea Levels map, literally. And there's this picture here from what we call England, the island, right? And mm-hmm. all of our history is about them being great naval people and, and all the, the separation of England from the continent and all that. There's just land everywhere. It was part of wow. Yeah, hugely so. Not just a little bit. <laughs> no, you were saying surprisingly recently. I mean, no, I think it's fifty-five hundred years ago. It finally severed. It was wow. a big estuary with some salt marshlands and wetlands. Right. Very rich in wildlife and fish and game and plant foods for sure. hundreds. Perfect yeah. country. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, to the east of India, there's the Homon civilization and the seafloor between Japan and Taiwan, because Japan also was not an island. At that time, this is about submerged structures. Yeah, it's brilliantly fascinating, especially when you consider we have exploding population. We have people saying, that's not a problem. There's plenty for everyone. And we have reduction of land. Anyone who thinks that humans have not had an impact on climate is barking up the wrong tree, number one. Mm -hmm. They're wrong. Number two, we are so blinded by competing ideologies that we don't face the realistic appraisals of what's happening. And this is a situation that requires and disregard politics, utter, utter realistic and practical thinking, something that we're really not doing. Scientists are, but not many other people. Mm-hmm. Awareness is zero for a lot of people. Or they just take a notice. This is a far more important problem than political ideologies or anything like that. It's like population control, long past the stage where religious beliefs can impact on things like that. Well, what's really interesting, for World War II, our nation was able to incite within the population a very strong goal. People were proud of not wearing their nylons and giving up their chocolate and rationing of all this stuff. So we know that we can actually influence a society as large as the American society to get behind something. Let's go to the moon, whatever it is. So this has the opportunity to be a shared goal that brings us together. Or you could say, quote, a common enemy. You know, the enemy is what will happen if we don't face the change of climate and we don't respond. The human past tells us that humans always rise to challenges, but almost invariably they rise to them when they have to. Mm-hmm. And the costs are very high. I, I just, before I did this interview, I was having a conversation with a guy at the zoo here. We have a, a very good zoo here. 
And the zoo has a major interest towards younger people, children. Mm -hmm. And one of the things they're trying to do is promote instinctive awareness of the natural world. So it becomes part of your psyche, which I think is very smart. Not political propaganda, but just part of your awareness. Right. The way we're stewards of it. Um, I was at the beach once. And, and the thing is, that, so like human beings, well, first of all, really quickly, I'm going to go ahead and do a station identification just so people know what they're listening to. You are listening to Prose, Poetry, and Purpose on 101.9 FM, KVSH. I am March Twisdale, and today my guest author is Brian Fagan. So we're talking right now about one of his books. He has several. You can go to brianfagan.com. Brilliant books. You're dealing with cultural values. You're dealing with um, uh, the way people are brought up. You're dealing with parenthood. It's a very complex issue. Mm-hmm. Well, this is where government maybe can come in and say, let's help. I have help. little faith in government because invariably it becomes a bureaucracy. Where it really belongs is in the classroom. Unfortunately, and in the home. Yeah, but unfortunately government's controlling the classroom right now. <laughs> Yes, they do. But when you get down to the curriculum and teachers, it's a different game. That's true. I hope. Yeah, the teachers are usually really, you know, the gold at the school. Okay, so let's talk about the next book, which is also all about how humans interact, the good, the bad, and the ugly, Um, The Intimate Bond. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? The Intimate Bond is a book about how humans and animals interacted through history and how animals changed history. And basically, it starts way back in the Ice Age. And the book focuses on about eight animals whom we've domesticated, mm-hmm. starting with dogs and ending up with basically horses and camels. And this is a book about not so much about why we domesticated them, but the ways in which we treated them once we had. And it starts with the dog, which, of course, was domesticated from the wolf and was a matter of propinquity of being close. It goes on to goats, sheep, cattle, uh, and then goes on to pack animals, starting with the donkey, which I think is one of the great neglected animals in history, Mm. uh, the camel, and then horses and cavalry and so on. And then they end up with a brief excursion into... um, how we treat animals today, which really is a topic in its own. Oh, gosh, no kidding. Right, so the subtitle is How Animals Shaped Human History, or, um, you know, it's it's interesting. I think we talked about this before, is that humans tend to be very, very, uh, what's the word? What's the word? Um, humans tend to just think about everything through the human perspective. Like, they're very, not egocentric in um a negative way, just very self-focused. And um, I think the point like, um, is that we don't necessarily look at other living creatures, especially mammals on the planet, as being co-mammals with us. You know, it's like there's us and then there's everything below us. And it is true. I mean, so much of what humans have experienced on this planet would not have been possible without their other animal compatriots. That is correct. Uh, the, the animals really added a whole dimension to human life. Mm-hmm. Uh, apart from becoming food, they have also transported belongings for us, and we, they become companions, they become protectors, mm-hmm. they become weapons. You, you name it, they've become it. I imagine when right now there's a lot of um, 
media at this current time in life. There's a lot that goes out on Facebook and other places where people are trying to raise our awareness of the love, empathy, compassion, the emotional side of animals. Um, you can easily on Google spend hours and hours watching, you know, the, these animals be friends. Like I remember there was, um, I don't know if they were rats. They might have been literally rats. One rat was blind and one was not. And the one that wasn't would pick up a stick and the blind one would bite the end of the other little twig, and the rat that could see would run along wherever it needed to go, and the blind rat would just come along because it was a, it was holding onto the stick. And so I imagine animals that lived in villages with humans, we tend to think of them as like a tool or food or an object, but I mean, my dog does not think of me as his his boss, he thinks of me as his, his pack mate. I mean, we're family. Yeah, no. Um, the relationship with humans, between humans and animals, particularly with things like the hunt, is very close. And the relationship between the riders of horses and their animals is very close because uh, horses respond to sensitive treatment and touch and kindness, mm -hmm. uh, which there's a large, large history of. Um, but, yeah, I would say we're very close to animals. But this overall emotion thing, I think, is a bit sort of over the, over the top at this point. Mm -hmm. Oh, you mean people have taken it too far? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. But it's, I'm, well, I'm all for kindness to animals. But mm -hmm. uh, there's, when you get your own emotional involvement, it can, go, it can really go overboard. So what do you know – What my husband recently watched something that, that was talking about a debate with regard to how or why we have domesticated dogs. And he was telling me he'd seen something like there's this conversation out there in the world of was it this way or was it that way? Are you aware of that debate and, and do you have some perspective on it? No, I'm not aware of the debate. Uh, it's been some time since I researched this. I mean, what happens is I, I work on a project for about two years and once it's done, I kind of put it in the files and right. it's gone. Um, right. But it's, it's, there is fairly universal agreement among scientists that dogs were domesticated in all kinds of places. Mm -hmm. Probably about 15,000 years ago, although there are those who claim they're earlier. The problem is we're working with bones. Right. And the bones of wolves and dogs are very similar in many respects. Mm -hmm. And size, there were people who said that for a while... Uh, animals that were half dog and half wolves associated with human hunting bands, say, 25, 30,000 years ago. But the first definitely domesticated dog, and this could change tomorrow, mm -hmm. is about 15,000 years ago. And the consensus among most people I've talked to is that wolves and humans have many similar qualities and that domestication took place because humans are particular bands of wolves Mm -hmm. and humans lived so constantly alongside each other and hunted the same animals that probably there was a familiarity and then some young wolves got corralled and mm -hmm. became dogs. I think that seems to be a very common theory. I think it's reasonable. Right, right, right. Yeah, I read a book um, where the theory that was put out, it was a fictional story, but, you know, it's like, you know, you have a woman who is, you know, a hunter, and so they're they're aware of the wolves in the area and the other animals that are hunters, and so like, like all carnivores in a region, you pay attention to the territory movements of your fellow, you know, carnivores, and then there ends up being um, a, a mother wolf 
that dies and she ends up finding, you know, the remaining pup. And, you know, and so the choice is made to go ahead and actually take care of this animal. And, you know, so it is fascinating to just think about. And um, I, why don't we go through a couple more of the animals? Um, you were talking about donkeys as being largely underappreciated. Donkeys are fascinating animals. They, I really got onto them by looking at a literature from about 3,000 years ago on clay tablets about caravans of donkeys which carried textiles from what is now northern Iraq to central Turkey and brought back in huge caravans gold and other materials. And there was a large archive of tablets dealing with this trade from a city, an ancient city in central Turkey, which a group of about six Belgian and Dutch experts have been translating for years. And I got into correspondence with them, and it was fascinating because what was important wasn't the donkeys, it was the loads. Mm -hmm. The donkeys have enormous advantage. They are very adaptable and easily trained. They adapt very well to semi-arid environments. They move really quite fast mm -hmm. and carry right respectable loads. And <clears throat> one of the Dutch guys described the donkeys as the pickup trucks of the past. And that's a very, very good way to put it. They were pickup trucks. There were thousands of them. I mean, the ancient Egyptians had them, and they actually ran caravans of donkeys mm -hmm. 200 miles into the Sahara Desert, mm -hmm. through some of the driest country on earth. And a third of the donkeys carried food for the donkeys, a third carried water, and a third carried the goods. It was wow. a highly organized, regular caravan system that worked for many centuries. Mm -hmm. uh, they linked civilizations. They were just amazing. But they've always been under the radar. They didn't have prestige, except to own thousands of them, like camels do or horses right, do. Right. They were the pickup trucks of the past. But of course, you've got to remember that Christ rode on a white donkey and so on and so forth. They were, could be status animals, but mm -hmm. today they're largely forgotten. I know, I know. Well, and once again, it's sort of the use them and, and dump them when you're done with them type of approach that if you feel yeah. like you're better than, then why not do that? You know, the Egyptian the early Egyptian pharaoh buried three or four donkeys in a cemetery. They mm -hmm. were so valuable. Mm -hmm. the, the donkeys show sign of of wear and tear on their bones from carrying heavy loads. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, now my son was in um, a history class a couple of years ago, I think, and um, I found it fascinating because I tend to sneak in and pick up his history books and start flipping through them because I just like history. And um, and then there was a show. I don't know what where you can find it. It has to do with Marco Polo, recently produced by one of, like, not by Showtime, but by something out there in the world. So um, the adventures of Marco Polo made within the last couple of years is a really, really, really interesting TV show. And so I was thinking about what was going on with the, you know, the Mongol Empire and all that. And what came up in the history class was that you had this, you know, the, the whole idea of the spice route was essentially the, the Mongol society were up in the arid regions where you have to keep moving or you're going to eat away all the grass in one location and all die. So they're constantly moving. And then when, when the, um, 
when conditions would shift, they would have to come down south and brush along the more permanent structures where people were doing farming and stuff like that. And so naturally the farmers who don't get to move wanted access to resources from, you know, three or 400 miles away. So it ended up being this really mutual benefit, you know, to both groups, but fundamentally all of it was based upon the animals. They wouldn't have been moving around if they didn't have the grazing herds that needed new pasture, and they wouldn't have been able to carry a bunch of goods to trade if they didn't have the animals to carry it. So, like, that whole massive thing was animal-derived. Somebody's been reading one of my books. (laughs) I've written quite a bit about this over the years. It's just like, yeah. I just think it's so great to be reminded of our interdependency with our fellow earthlings in a way. Oh, yeah, and the history of humans being cruel to animals and exploiting them is enormous. The most tragic one, of course, is the use of them in war and cavalry. And then you, of course, have got an enormous number of animals that were used for carrying loads in Victorian cities. And I think Mm -hmm. it was something like Philadelphia or Chicago that were caught of a million animals. Right. Huge. And, of course, you've got the issue of disposing of their waste and disposing of dead beasts and goodness knows what. So right. we, in some ways, should be very glad we have motor vehicles. Right. Well, it's, it's someone, I was in another conversation about this, and they were, they were talking about how when the horses dropped dead in New York or wherever, even Seattle, I think they were using horses initially, that they would oftentimes just leave them there and yep. have another horse come along, attach it to the wagon, and off you go, and there's a dead horse on the side of the road in the middle of a city 18 blocks away from the nearest piece of land. You know, like, how do you deal with that? They had they had organizations that did. Mm-hmm. People who picked them up and then um, dismembered the animals and sold them for animal feed or whatever, you know. Oh, yeah. Right. Was, certainly in London and New York, it was pretty organized. Mm-hmm. It had to be. Well, this reminds me of a question I was thinking of um, a couple of minutes ago. I jotted down a note here talking about animal domestication in particular. We've got the old world versus the new world, and it seems to be quite distinct. The new world, what animals were domesticated here? Yeah, well, there were a few wild beasts you could uh, domesticate. The animals domesticated in the Americas were turkeys, Mm. llamas, and alpacas, and that's it. Mm-hmm. But if you go to Europe, of course, you've got sheep, goats, pigs, all sorts of stuff, many of which were domesticated in semi-arid regions like the, the Near East or China. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's a very different world. And uh, once animals, uh, cattle, horses, sheep, goats came over here, it really revolutionized both local life and also the environment. Why do you think there would be, I mean, you know, at one point it was one big giant supercontinent and then the Atlantic Ocean decided to pop itself up there, boom, boom, boom. You know, like what was it that caused there to be, like the monkeys, old world monkeys have prehensile tails, new world, no, wait, maybe say the way around. One of the world monkeys (laughs) have prehensile tails on the other part of the planet. You don't have any prehensile tails. It's just simple environmental mutation, genetic mm-hmm. drift, all those things, about which I don't know a great deal. Mm-hmm. There are many diverse ways in which animals evolve yeah. and which animals become extinct. Right. I mean, there were camels in America 10,000, 12,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. Things like that. Those giant birds? Yep. 
Like, I mean, yeah, that, that's what I find really fascinating is it just... 10,000 years ago. Everyone's Holy fascinated minutes. by dinosaurs, but take a look at some of the Ice Age animals in yeah. Europe uh, 20,000 years ago. There's some pretty pretty hefty animals around. Well, even in the new in the new world, too. I mean, those giant birds, well, there were the birds in Australia, but there's others, very um, aggressive birds in South America. Of course, woolly mammoth, saber-toothed tigers. I mean, yeah, it's fascinating how much change there's been oh, in yeah. just and the last few. we've devastated. Yeah. I know. The oceans. Let's talk about the oceans. So um, for those of you who are just joining us right now, if you're listening on 101.9 FM, thanks for joining us. This is Voice of Vashon, KVSH. And um, if you are listening on the computer, yay. If not, you can. So your friends all over the world can listen in on this interview at any point. They go to voiceofvashon.org. And then you look up under the show's, you know, title, and you're looking for prose, poetry, and purpose, which is my show. I'm talking with Brian Fagan today about multiple books uh, and just a treasure trove of awesome things to read people. So we're going to touch in on the last book of the interview, and this is um, not yet titled, or do you have a working title? It's called More in the Sea. More? More in the sea. Like M-O-R-E. Yeah, more fish in the sea is what it is. Yeah, 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 it doesn't yeah, really yeah. have a title. It's too early. Well, yeah. We're like still fiddling with that. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, um, but it's going to be about a history of fishing. So in a way, it's almost like you took the intimate bond, which was humans and their interaction with land creatures, and now you've shifted it to our interaction with the aquatic world. Yep. In a way, it's a global history of fishing from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, the most important thing is that we never invented fishing. It just happened. It is a form of opportunism, and mm-hmm. uh, we humans are classic opportunists. We see a fish in the water, we'll pick it up. Right. So in a way, we are doing what all the other animals do that um, consume life out of the waterways. We just notice yeah. it's there and we chase it down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this book is a sort of history of different types of fish in different areas. It goes right around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, very difficult book to write. I'm mm. still in, uh, uh, I've got a, a version of it on paper, but I'm not happy with it yet. I'm still playing with it. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, it's really basically about human opportunism, opportunism and then how we've turned fish into a commodity. Mm-hmm. And the book ends with the Industrial Revolution when you get trawling coming in. Yeah. Because once we start really screwing up the, the, the sea bottom with steam trawlers and motorized trawlers, that's a different world. And there are libraries full of books saying how evil the present uh, crisis is. This book gives the historical background. Right. I stop basically at the Industrial Revolution. Right, right, right. So, so start with, um, let's say, like, take um, how early do you start? How far back do you go? Oh, a million and a half years. Okay, Catfish nice. Catfish in shallow African lakes. Presumably there were bones of them on uh, places where early humans um, camped. Mm-hmm. But it really picked up after the Ice Age. That's when it really started. Mm-hmm. When a lot of big game game became extinct and people had to diversify what they ate and they went for fish, shellfish, and plant foods. Interesting. So there's so there's um, an extinction period with regard to large mammals. What caused that? Nobody really knows. 
climate change was a fundamental issue. Uh, in some places, increasing dryness. In others, um, environments vanished and so on. It's a very complex process. Mm-hmm. And is it sudden? Is there like any suggestion? It that- was relatively quick. I would say five, ten thousand years, yeah. Got it, got it. And so there was a big shift, and then you you find archaeological evidence of an increase in our access of um, sea life. Well, what you've got, you see a sea levels rising. Mm-hmm. You've got environments, certainly in Europe, becoming much more forested, mm-hmm. and that pushed people to the sides of lakes and rivers and the seashores. And once there... The opportunities for taking fish and shellfish when you couldn't get fish were enormous, and fishing became important, increasingly important, in societies that lived from hunting and from gathering. It seems to me that the gathering piece would probably have generally been there for anyone who was like on the water. It's a little bit hard to miss the fact that you've got, you know, a muscle there that's attached to a rock and you can pull it off. But wasn't there a real shift in our use of tools as a species? Oddly enough, no. Um, When you started fishing, I thought this too, actually. At the beginning, when people started fishing, and it's still true today, um, the basic methods of fishing simply took, say, a spear that was used on land Mm-hmm. and started spearing fish in shallow water. Right. But eventually, they developed nets, hooks, mm-hmm. lines, same nets which allow you to catch large numbers of fish. Mm-hmm. What's extraordinary is that right from just after the Ice Age, all the way up to the Industrial Revolution, there was practically no change in the basic technology of fishing. Hmm. It remained fundamentally medieval. And this is particularly true of the North Atlantic cod trade, where they caught cod with hooks and lines. Mm -hmm. And a great deal of sustainable fisheries still uses the same technology. Very, very simple, because there really isn't much you can do till you start trawling. Well, if you look at, like, where we are up here in the Northwest, of course, I mean, I always... (laughs) I always say to my kids, and it probably drives them crazy, but we'll be on the ferry and we'll be looking around and I'll say, just remember, you know, 300, 350 years ago, basically everywhere in the Seattle area, everywhere in the Puget Sound was pre, uh, what's the word I use um, when the Europeans came in? It's not a polite yeah, not just pristine, because, but it's the people who lived here, had been living here for thousands of years sustainably, and I'll say everything was clean. You know, everything we talk about, pollution, or you can't eat this, or you can't eat that because of the toxins, none of that existed. And in 300 years, we've gone from basically a place where people had more food than they needed. There was very little competition for food in the in this area. Um, that's why they did so much gambling and other activities. They just had lots of free time. And, of course, who wouldn't when all you have to do is go walk out there for a couple of months while billions of fish come swimming up your rivers? It wouldn't have taken a lot of technology to catch the salmon during the salmon run because you literally are trying to not fall over the fish when you go into what, the river. What took the effort? with mm-hmm. the infrastructure to preserve the fish mm-hmm. and store them. And right. that's where, um, again, the technology was very simple, and people smoked 
salted or dried fish. Mm -hmm. It's simple. But you have to have the people to build the racks, to build mm -hmm. storage facilities, to process the fish that you catch. Right. And that's where the complexity comes in. Right, right. And they were obviously really good at that. I love the stories. Um, uh, there's a, there's a, a yeah. lovely book by a lady called Hilary Stewart. Hilary Stewart. Uh, published by the University of Washington Press. It's called Indian Fishing. Mm -hmm. It came out years ago, but it's beautifully illustrated and really informative. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm looking at it right here. I love the Internet. Early Methods on the Northwest yeah, Coast. Yeah, it's a fabulous book. Really, yeah. very, very good. Oh, wow, it's beautiful. So Hillary is spelled with one L. Um, Indian Fishing is the basic title. And there's this, some really interesting images here of... Hillary Stewart, yeah, she's, yeah. she's first rate. Awesome, awesome. So, so um, let's jump over to the Mediterranean and touch a little bit. I want to make sure that my listeners get a chance to hear about what's going on with bluefin tuna. And that's obviously a little bit outside the scope of your book because basically up until the beginning of industrialized fishing, which was like one of the greatest evils of humankind on planet Earth, um, the bluefin were doing brilliant. And they've been around for about 35 million years, you know, incredibly powerful species. And now they're almost wiped out. What um, do you know historically about the role of the bluefin tuna in human society? Well, in the Mediterranean, of course, the, the tuna migrations were enormously important because that was when tuna came into shallow water mm -hmm. and they had this elaborate system of trapping and netting them and then slaughtering them. I think it was called the Mazzano. I mm -hmm. forget what the name of it is. Um, this figured quite largely into Roman diet. Mm -hmm. um, but, of course, the Mediterranean is not enormously rich fishery except for the tunas. Um, and the big thing the Romans did was fish farming. They farmed mullet, mm. uh, as indeed did the ancient Egyptians. The, the, uh, the ancient Egyptians fished entirely the river. They fished catfish and uh, mm -hmm. mullet and bream and other fish. Um, but basically, tuna are very important. And, of course, one of the problems now with the, tuna, the Japanese tuna fishers, mm -hmm. they go way offshore and they catch them year-round. Right. So it's small wonder they've been decimated because the... Um, price of tuna is enormous and it's highly desired in in japan if you go to the the tokyo fish market there were enormous tuna there right and they're very very expensive so what people need to understand about the impact they can have as a consumer um in making decisions about what to eat um the you know, everyone's heard about the Somalian piracy thing that's been going on. What started that is that international waters, you're supposed to have off the edge of your country a certain number of miles out that belongs to you. And the Somali people were basically really low-end fishers, fishermen. I mean, they just went after small, easy-to-catch fish in the surf. They didn't go too far out, whatever. Well, one thing that's going on is the farming of big uh, of bluefin tuna. And this is indeed something about 90% of the bluefin tuna caught on the planet is sold in Japan. In fact, Mitsubishi, which is a very powerful company, has started purchasing bluefin tuna and keeping them frozen because that's how they, they, they're stored frozen. They're sold like $100,000 for one fish because it'll be a 600-pound fish or a 400-pound fish. They're actually buying up 
the last of the bluefin tuna and storing them frozen because they anticipate that when there's a complete collapse, they can turn around and sell them for, you know, however many hundreds of dollars a pound to people who will still want to pay that amount of money in Japan to have this special food that used to be surrounding the Japanese island and people would just go out, catch four, five, six in a day, come back to the village and feed the village. And so what happened is the international fisher, these, you know, corporate fisheries would go along the Somali coast and lots of other places with giant nets miles and miles wide. They would catch all of the cheap, unimportant fish that they couldn't sell to the rich people on the planet. They would grind it up, take it to the Mediterranean and dump it into the big pens where they are farming bluefin tuna. And so the Somali people lost their ability to feed themselves because the international community didn't care that they were being robbed of basically their their local food source right off of their own coast. That is correct. So um, buying bluefin tuna is a really horrible idea. And it's something that if you choose in your lifetime to not indulge in that, then you are really making a very um, potentially well-informed choice. It's, um, it's a big problem. So I'm going to just come down on it that way. <laughs> so let's see here. Last thing really quick is um, uh, people can go to your website, brianfagan.com. And, Brian, I just... Really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much. Okay. Let's see here. Um, that's our show, folks. My name is March Twisdale. You've been listening to my interview with Brian Fagan. Thank you for tuning in to Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, where my guest authors share how they hope to inspire positive change in the world, one reader and one listener at a time. For those of you who live on or visit Vashon Island, feel free to drop by the Vashon Bookshop and flip through a display copy of The Intimate Bond, The Great Warming, or um, whichever book happens to be on my little prose, poetry, and purpose stand right there. I take my books and I set them up as a display copy so you can go flip through them. And now I'll leave you with the inspirational and timely song, We Are the Many, created by musical activist Makana. Come here and gather round the stage The time has come for us to voice our rage Against the ones who've trapped us in a cage To steal from us the value of our wage From underneath the vestiture of law The lobbyists at Washington do not at liberty, the bureaucrats guffaw And until they are purged, we won't withdraw We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few Our nation was built upon the right 
of every person to improve their plight. The laws of this republic they rewrite, and now a few own everything in sight. They own it free of liability. They own, but they are not like you and me. Their influence dictates legality, and until they are stopped, we are not free. We'll occupy the streets. We'll occupy the courts. We'll occupy the offices of you till you do the bidding of the many, not the few. Enforce your monopolies with guns, while sacrificing our daughters and sons. But certain things belong to everyone. Your thievery has left the people none. So take heed of our notice to redress. We have little to lose. We must confess. Your empty words do leave us unimpressed. A growing number join us in protest. We occupy the streets. We occupy the courts. We occupy the offices of you till you do. Bidding of the many, not the few. You can't divide us into sides, and from our gaze you cannot hide. Denial serves to amplify. And our allegiance you can't buy. Our government is not for sale. The banks do not deserve a bail. We will not reward those who fail. We'll not move till we prevail. We'll occupy the streets. We'll occupy the courts. We'll occupy the offices of you till you do the bidding of the many, not the few. We'll occupy the streets. We'll occupy the courts. We'll occupy the offices of you till you do. Bidding of the many, not the few. We are the many. You are the few.